So today we're going to talk about putting first things first. And so this theme, which is consistent with one, there are ones kind of all over the Bible. And uh, next week we'll talk about our one life. We get one life to live. And uh, you don't want to miss next Sunday either as we talk about some important things around making the most of our solitary life. And, uh, but for t- today, we're going to talk about putting first things first. And if you're here in, in, and you're married, you might be thinking, well, the, f- the most important thing to me is my marriage. Um, or if you're a parent, you might say, the most important thing to me are my kids. And when you hear some of the reports coming out of the Middle East and Israel, when you hear about kids who've been hurt and killed and just a terrible experience, it just sort of strikes you in, in such a personal way because you're a parent. Um, for some of you, your job or your career is really, really important to you. And, and those of you who are here who are Jesus-following people, if I was to ask you what's the most important thing to you, we all know what the right answer is, right? The right answer would be, well, God is the most important thing to me. And, um, but I, how do you know, by the way, what is the most important thing to you? Uh, there, there's something called the, the knowing-doing gap. And sometimes what we want to be true of us isn't necessarily true of us. Have you ever had that experience in life where you have this awakening moment where it's like, yeah, this is what I want to be true of me, but then I see myself in a different way, and it's like, yeah, but that, there's a big gap there or a mid-sized gap there between what I say is important and then how I, how I order my life. And uh, I would suggest to you a couple thoughts. One would be how we spend our time. That's a variable that really matters a lot. You know, it's been said before, how do you spell love? T-I-M-E, Right. Uh, how we spend our time is indicative of what we value. Uh, another thing would be how we spend or, you know, disperse our treasure, what's been entrusted to us, finances. If you were to open up your financial statement and take a look at where you allocate resources, you might get an idea of what's most important to you. Your priorities will probably emerge in some way. So how we spend our time, how we spend our treasure. And, and I, would, I would argue a third one is important too is um, another T would be the thoughts we think. When we have capacity to think, open thoughts about whatever we want to think about. What are the thought themes that emerge for us? Because our heart follows our treasure, our time, and even our thinking. And uh, so that's one way of of asking the question, um, who's number one in my life? And I don't want this to be one of those scripture talks that when you leave, you feel like I'm never good enough because Pastor Dave says God needs to be number one in my life. And unless I'm praying for 23 and a half hours a day, right? Unless I'm serving, I'm at the church every time the doors are open, right? It's just I'm, I'm never measuring up to that top priority calling or invitation that God has given to us. First of all, there are a lot of different ways to serve God. And, and there are seasons in our lives when, as a young parent, taking really good care of those children God's entrusted to you is an act of worship. And investing in that marriage relationship by making it a very, very important, significant Um, human relationship is also a reflection of your value and your love for God. And so it's not always, uh, what's the term for it, unidirectional, so to speak. There are times when we do things that seem to be out here, but we do them because of our love for God. It's an expression of our love for God. Even the way we relate to our work, God calls us to make a contribution in the world. So I just don't think we do a service to anyone seated here today if we think in simplistic terms about what it means to put God in his proper place. It doesn't always mean that all we ever do is talk about him, right? A Christian artist just doesn't paint crosses, 
A Christian artist paints beautiful pictures and portraits, and it's for the glory of God that they do it. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to um, put first things first. And um, so before we do that, though, if you would stand with me, if you're able, we're going to recite an important passage of Scripture found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the Shema, which means to hear. And uh, this is a very, very important passage to our Jewish, Jewish friends. So would you join me? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The word of the Lord. And you may be seated. So this morning's teaching is going to kind of anchor around, um, just like I had these three T's of time, treasure, and thoughts, we're going to look at three L's for us to consider what it means for us to um, really put first things first. And so the first L is listen. The second L is love, and the third L is learn. And uh, we'll tie this into a biblical teaching on inviting you and myself to become people who prioritize God first and foremost in our lives. So the first thought is listening, the first voice. What's the first voice we listen for? Uh, There are many voices, aren't there, in the world that compete for our attention. Some are extremely loud. Some can be intimidating. Some can be quiet and subtle. Uh, But there are a lot of voices, whether it's a 24-hour news cycle or um, cell phone alerts that we get on our phones or maybe even the internal chatter uh, that we actually listen to in ourselves. We're always kind of having an internal dialogue. And uh, it's hard sometimes for us. We did a series um, a, a number of months ago this idea of just kind of quiet, like turn down the volume, right? Voices, what are we listening to? And um, there, there are some things we can do to help us adjust the volume. I like to think in terms of a dial rather than a switch. We can't shut all the voices off, but we can turn the volume down. And as we turn the volume down, hopefully we will be tuned in to the first voice. And so um, I wanna take you to Luke chapter 10. The passage will be on the screen. Starting at verse 38, Jesus comes to um, Mary's and Martha's home. And as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening. She sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I could use a little bit of help in the kitchen. It's Thanksgiving, and and Mary's sitting at your feet, and I'm doing all the heavy lifting. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. And that's human, right? Let's not be too hard on Martha, but that's human. You're upset and worried about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, 
doesn't mean what Martha was doing wasn't good, but Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I love this passage for so many reasons, not because service is um, dismissed or devalued. Jesus, in John 13, washes his disciple friend's feet. He gets down, washes his friend's feet, and then he says, I've set you an example that you should go and do likewise. And so we're invited to be people who serve. God is a servant, right? That's something we should celebrate and elevate. And when we're serving other people, we're in step with the nature, the true nature and character of God. So it's not about diminishing or dismissing service. It's about elevating, listening to Jesus. What I also love about this story is that Jesus is inviting Mary to be one of his disciples. Jesus is a rabbi, right? Only men could sign up to be students of a rabbi. But when you sit at a rabbi's feet, you get to be a learner or a student, and Jesus lets Mary or Mary to be a student of his in that moment. Uh, Don't ever question whether Jesus is into equality when it comes to men and women. He values men and he values women, esteems them both. I love that story for so many reasons. And I also love the fact that Jesus is elevating what it means to adopt an appropriate posture. He's the teacher, we're the student, we're the listener. And as we open our ears as wide as we can to listen to what Jesus has to say, we're always better off for it. There's a place to be in the kitchen with Martha. And there's a place to be at Jesus' feet. And it's most important, the primary posture for us is to be listening for what Jesus is saying to us. There are many, many tasks that compete for our energy and devotion, just as there are many, many voices that demand our attention. And so we live in a time in history, especially in our part of the world, where we are incredibly blessed with opportunities. Uh, This is what I would think about wealth and financial prosperity. Uh, It's not an end in itself. It opens doors. It provides opportunities. And for those of us who live in the Western world, we are all wealthy, aren't we, to to some degree. And uh, and so here we have this um, opportunity, so many, in fact, in our Western world, that we can kind of move away or drift subtly away from a posture of sitting at Jesus' feet. And so this invitation this morning is, uh, is exactly that. It's an invitation to listen to the primary voice of Jesus. Focused attention with Jesus at the very center requires intentionality. Mary gave Jesus her focused attention, and Jesus celebrated her for her devotion to listening to him. So are you listening for Jesus today? And do you feel that he might even have something to say to you? I think we have to cross that bridge first. Do you think Jesus has something to say to you? I think he does. I think he does, and I think he's speaking a lot more often than we are aware. If we have ears to hear, eyes to see, we might see and hear much more of what the Spirit is saying to the church and to us as individuals. And listen, there is nothing quite like knowing that God has spoken with you. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you've said, I think God has got my attention. Some of you understand exactly what I'm talking about. I have had multiple, I could take the rest of this gathering to recount the times when God has 
during moments when there's forks in the road or moments when there were all sorts of questions and concerns, he would come to me and speak with me. And um, some of you might have never had that experience. One of my daughters said to me the other day, how come God always speaks like that to you? And I said, it's not always, but sometimes. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the sometimes. They're very, very important. I don't know how God speaks with you. The Word of God, Scripture, is always foundational. But I've had God come to me many, 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 many times through others who didn't even know that God was coming to me through them. This is, in many ways, my view of the prophetic. It doesn't mean that people don't know that they have a word, for, a word from God for others. But for me personally, because he's so familiar with my wiring, he comes to me through people who don't even know what they're doing and what they're saying is from God. And it just resonates with me, and it's unbelievably beautiful. Can you relate to that at all? A voice within a voice, a gesture within a gesture, and there you are encountering God. I don't know if I ever told you this one before or not. Can I tell you? I got a couple minutes on this one. Let's do this. Before I signed up for what I'm doing now, vocational ministry, I was a 19-year-old kid, cross-legged on my bed in my bedroom, wondering, because I felt this strength about going to prepare for some form of vocational ministry. And I remember sitting cross-legged on that bed with my living Bible open, and I was reading it, and then I was praying. And I had this strong, strong feeling, that's all I can say, is that God wanted me to prepare formally for vocational ministry. Didn't have the whole roadmap, like Abram, right? Go leave your father's household, I'll show you to the place when you get there. (laughs) I don't know what it meant for me, But I just said to God in my prayer, I said, I'm not going to go off and do that unless you speak with me. Probably maybe a bit of an immature prayer, to be honest, but I prayed it at 19. I said, I would love for you to speak with me through somebody I deeply respect to confirm that what I'm thinking about is, uh, is what you want for me. Because, by the way, this kind of calling is not easy, just in case you've wondered. Signing up for pastoral ministry is not like, yeah, I want an easy path. Give me an easy one, Lord. It's not an easy one. And so uh, I was working this job between years of high school and before I went to to Bible school. And my lead pastor in the church called me up at my workplace seven days later. And he said, Dave, can I take you out for lunch? I said, sure, that would be awesome. We went to Pizza Hut right in Kingston. I don't know exactly where we were. Went to Pizza Hut and he sat down. We had lunch together and he said, I was supposed to reach out to you a week ago but I was busy getting ready to go to Florida and I was packing up the van and we left. But I knew the first thing I needed to do when I got back was to ask you this question. He said to me, have you ever considered going to Bible school and preparing yourself for vocational ministry? I was like, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is enjoying pizza with us at Pizza Hut right now. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about right there. Well, what is that? Am I following a hunch? Am I stepping out in faith? Yes and yes, but man, God gave me enough credibility in that moment to say, I'd be deaf, dumb, and stupid not to have seen what God was waving at me, right? So God wants to speak with us. 
There are other times, by the way, the sign doesn't come that clear. Right? We just keep putting one foot in front of the other and saying, I trust you, Jesus. I don't know. When Abram left his, his father's household to the land, he would show him. He didn't show him right away. There were some detours and some ups and downs and valleys and waterways to cross and all sorts of stuff. We do that too. By faith, believing that God is with us with every next step we take. That's also the life of faith. So he'll give us windows. He'll give us reminders. He'll whisper in our ear, and sometimes he'll even shout on occasion to remind us you're on the right path. Or, like the Apostle Paul, you need to do an about faith because you're going the wrong way. He'll come to us for lots of reasons to accomplish his purposes in our lives. So, listening. This is the, the primary voice or the first voice. Secondly, let's talk about loving, rekindling our first love. Uh, and by the way, love for God um, can, can be expressed in all sorts of diverse ways. Why do I know that? Because there are a diversity of personalities and people seated here today. No two people in this room are alike. And so no two people in this room will express your love for God exactly the same as the person sitting beside you. We're all different. And so what we need to be careful is that we drop these um, lenses of expectations that we look through towards others including ourselves, and we say, I'm going to give myself permission to love God the way you made me to love you. And so I won't be hard on myself because I don't love you the way the other people in my circle love you. I'm going to be my true, redeemed, reclaimed self who loves you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. So when we think about love for God in the Bible... I'm just going to lay in a bit of a foundation, and I'm going to share two passages with you, and then we'll go on to our third point. Here's the foundation. There's, there's two ways in Scripture we're invited to love God. One is the volitional way, which is through the use of our choices, the expression of our will. I know this because we know this together because Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We will choose, right? That's the volitional way. Then there's also this other part, and it's important as we look at these, these passages. There's an emotional way, or we could even say the way of the heart, right? There's the way of the mind where we choose, and there's the way of the heart where our hearts, as the disciples were on the road to Emmaus, our hearts were strangely warmed. Weren't they burning as he spoke with us, right? There's that way of the heart. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called The Way of the Heart. This is what he's getting at. If we don't enjoy Jesus at a heart level, and we only engage him with our cerebral, with our minds, with our thoughts, we do run the risk of having a cold, disintegrated faith. He wants us to think wonderful thoughts about him, and he wants us to love him with our hearts. And I know that because, let me read you this story. It won't be on the screen, but let me read this. This is from um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This is an extravagant demonstration of love. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he kind of recoils. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. 
This is where Simon should be all ears. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That is a powerful, powerful story that I share with you today to invite you into a consideration of the way of the heart. The way of the heart understands and embraces and accepts and personalizes the gospel. And with gratitude or with repentance, we come to Jesus and we pour ourselves out to him. We don't go through the motions. We don't check the boxes. We don't fulfill obligations. But we come to him with our hearts. This is what this woman had experienced. Now, after saying that and sharing this passage with you, let me introduce you to another one. And for all the perfectionists in the room, this is going to be a hard passage for you to digest. And I number myself among you. Revelation chapter 2. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among the churches. I know your deeds. They do good things. I know your hard work. You're not afraid of a hard, hard experience, and you're not afraid to roll up your sleeves and serve the king and his kingdom. I know your perseverance. You're not quitters. When it's hard, you keep going. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You're committed to sound doctrine. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is a pretty good church. They're getting a lot of things right. They're lined up in so many ways. Their character's been adjusted. They're looking to honor God. They're resisting evil. They're serving the king and his kingdom. Some amazing things are happening. The early Christians in Ephesus got some things right. Good deeds, hard work, hated the right things, sound doctrine, dirt hardship. Yet, he says, as I was meditating on this passage this week, I found this perfectionism thing come up for me. It was like, wow, this church got a lot of things right. But God's zoning in on something. Jesus is zeroing in on something. And it's important what he's zeroing in on. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. And then he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. But you have this in your favor. 
You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't really know what their practices were, but we assume they were violent people. You hate the violence as well. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So what does this passage teach us? It teaches us this. Doing the right things matters. It matters a lot. And doing them for the right reasons matters even more. Doing the right things matters, and it matters a lot. But for the right reasons matters even more. And the right reason is always because I love God. That's why. That's why I'll do the next right thing. Not because I want things to go well for me, even though that's a bonus. I'll do the next right thing, not because I want to look good in everybody else's eyes. I'll do the next right thing because it's right and because I love God. That's why we do the next right thing. So here's what Jesus is going after. You're doing the right things, but perhaps you've lost the reason why you're doing them. Or, maybe better understood, these three D words. This is an alliteration Sunday. T's, L's, and D's, yeah. Sometimes we do the right thing because it's a duty. It's expected of us. And we acquire enough character to say, no, I've disciplined myself to continue to do the next right things because I've trained my mind, my brain, my body to move this way. Duty, discipline, delight. Dallas Willard used to always say, being a disciple is a status. When you decide to follow Jesus, you are a disciple. When you are a spiritually formed person, you enlist yourself in a process. And Dallas Willard would say, when Jesus said after they had pierced him and scourged him and put a crown of thorns on his head, the hardest thing for Jesus to do in that moment, Dallas Willard says this, would be to call down curses on the people who were executing him. That would have been the hardest thing for Jesus to do. The easiest thing for him to do was to say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing because he was fully formed. We can have duty. We can have discipline. There's a time for that as we move towards delight. So when we keep the commandments, we step into the ways of God. It's not just because it's the right thing. It's what we love to do. I crave and have an appetite to do the will of God, to follow the ways of God, to say yes to all that he's inviting me into. Because when Christ, who is your life, appears, he is my life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Christ is my life. And I have developed an appetite, an acquired taste for the king and the kingdom of God. Do you see the difference? Duty, discipline, delight. That, I think, is what Revelation 2 is about. I think Jesus is saying to the church, you're doing a lot of right things, but you've lost the delight. You've lost the delight, the joy of doing the will of God. This is why when you read in the New Testament, there's this idea of the joy of generosity or generous giving. If you're checking the boxes or doing the next right thing out of obligation, it's kind of like, oh, I got to part with this money. Oh, it's... I got paid again. It's tithe time. Oh, this hurts so much. Paul talks about the joy of giving. What's that about? Well, Jesus has captured the imagination. He's captured the heart of the person. They're caught up 
in blessing and being extravagant with their giving. It's joyful giving. Pastor, I'm a million miles from that. That's okay. That's okay. It's where you're at. This is what I would say to you. Wonderful. Don't pretend you're in joyful giving when you're in duty and discipline. But lean in and say, Lord, one day, would you help me by your grace to move from duty and discipline to pure delight? And expect him to nudge you along the way. And all of a sudden, you wake up one day and you say, I love to do X, Y, and Z. And that will be, I believe, what, what God is getting at here, what Jesus is getting at with the, the Ephesus or the Ephesian people. All right, one last thought for you because our time quickly goes. Number three, learning, right? So we've got listening, loving, and learning, our first and primary teacher. Um, learning and life go together. If you ever stop learning, uh, you are going to miss what it means to flourish and thrive as a human. It's the way God made us and designed us. Not all learning comes with a classroom or a, uh, a book in your hand, though classrooms and books are wonderful places. Um, when you begin to study and learn about the things that you're most passionate about. But learning is so much more. Learning is about having a disposition of heart. And the book you read is actually maybe the person you spend time with or the circumstances or experiences of life. You go on a discovery. You're on an adventure to learn. Uh, you're broadening your mind. Your worldview is getting either clearer or you're reevaluating things. Um, we're allowed, by the way, to change our views as we grow and mature. Have you ever changed your mind about something? I think it's actually really good that some of us have changed our minds about some things. We're not static, and I think we should always be rethinking and reconsidering, and, and uh, there's this word that's out there right now, and I'll meet it in one sense and not another, deconstructing. There's a sense in which we can look at something and say, I'm not sure that the way that's standing right now is the best way that it should be structured. Let's pull away at a few things and build something even better. The deconstruction movement that is tearing things apart and leaving them in pieces, I don't think that's what we ought to be doing. I think we should pull things apart and rebuild it better in ways that bring a more pronounced smile to God. If that's what deconstruction is, I'm signing up for it. We can evaluate and we can build and we can think and we can change our minds about certain things. It's a wonderful thing to do. So um, now I would say this, who we learn from really matters. And so here's our last passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a beautiful invitation. Rabbi Jesus invites people to come and learn from him. So three last quick thoughts is this. All of you, all of us who put our saving faith in Jesus, we are disciples. There's not tier one and tier two of Christians. There's not the overzealous who are in the disciple category and then there's this other group of Christians over here. If you have chosen to follow Jesus, you are a disciple. What does that mean? It means you're a disciplined follower of Jesus who gets your delight from being in relationship with him. And it also means that you are a learner. Literally, a disciple is a student. Jesus invites his disciple friends, come follow me, right? Come learn from me. So a disciple is a learner or a student. 
And learning happens best by following an example. And we've already talked about this in John 13. Jesus says, I've set you an example. You should go and do likewise. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we ought to all be imitators of God. So we ought to learn from his example and then imitate him by how we live. And then the last one is this. Learning is a process that never, ever ends. Um, We celebrated Norma Jean Jenkins' life on Thursday of this past week. And she was 93 years young and a wonderful part of our church family. It was so easy to speak so well of her. She was like my grandmother, uh, Grandma Larmer. She was very warm and she was classy. And um, she was at King with her husband, Ken, for I'd say close to 50 years or so, a long time. She came in the late 70s or so and Ken followed shortly after. A wonderful, wonderful woman and couple. One thing I remember about Ken, her husband, who passed away in 2018, I believe. Ken was in his early 80s, and he was still taking courses at Durham College. And he would tell me about, I'm taking a course on meteorology up there, about weather patterns. And and it was like, wow. He'd been retired for years. It wasn't to get a promotion at work. His brain, his mind, he knew that to live meant to learn. And I know some of you in this room, You are deeply committed to leaning in with your learning, and it's a wonderful thing. We should always keep learning. So here's my big question for you today. What are you learning about God these days? Please don't tell me, please do not tell me that you've exhausted your learning about God. Because if you've exhausted your learning about God, I don't know what you're drinking, but pour me a cup, because... You're way ahead of me. And, and I, I don't know how on earth anybody this side of heaven could ever exhaust their learning about God. We have so much to learn and to discover. And if you're bored on your adventure with God, there's no problem with God. You have your own issues. And that's okay. Around King, you'll hear me say that a lot. And that's okay. You're allowed to say, right now on my journey, I'm bored with God. Okay. All right. I wonder why that is. How do we kickstart your renewed adventure with Jesus? If we distance ourselves from him, we will have a blurred vision and we'll lose the forest for the trees, and that's when the boredom comes. But when we're up close and personal with Jesus, we're seeing him, we're growing, we're learning, we're pressing in. All you got to do is sign up, by the way, to follow our friends at the Bible Project, and you will find out that there's a lot to learn about God. Some amazing, amazing things. Do a little search on that podcast, the Bible Project, and you'll have your mind blown pretty fast about the amazing, amazing God that we serve and love. So, all right, I'm done for today. That's how we do this. At 11.39, I'm done. So I want to pray for you. Listening loving and learning. Um, We want to evaluate, right, our time, our treasure, and our thoughts. And we want to be honest about where we are with this thing called duty, um, discipline, and delight. I gave you enough to work on over the next week, right? I think so. Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you today that we are numbered among the people of God, and we are scattered all over the world. Thank you that there are little expressions like this 
all over the place. We thank you that your spirit is speaking across all sorts of Christian traditions, and it's amazing. Thank you, God, that we belong to an expansive kingdom. And thank you that we get to enjoy for all eternity a God that we get to know. And that will even be an adventure in itself. And for now, God, help us to not be so preoccupied with lesser things, but to see that Christ is to be integrated into every aspect of our lives, our work, our relationships, our play, our study, whatever it might be. Help us to see Jesus moving us and inviting us into every facet of our life, taking you with us, keeping you at the very center of our orientation as humans. Jesus, we just decide together today to say yes to you. We decide again in a fresh way to follow you. Wherever, God, there's been some roadblocks or impediments or things that have tripped us up and distracted us to the point where maybe some have lost their way, would you come to us in your grace and would you invite us back along the narrow way again? And Lord, where our affections have been stoked for the world, and where our hearts have moved us in all sorts of wrong directions in your grace and mercy, would you nudge us back? And Lord, would you help us to be people who practice repentance at all times, turning away from those things that um, are threats to our well-being and our flourishing toward you? And uh, Lord, thank you that there is no judgment over the people of God today, that there is no shame over us. It's not an issue of trying harder. It's an issue of just opening our hearts up further. So, Lord, come and show us what that looks like in our lives. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you are a wonderful companion, and you come to us in just the way we need you to come to us. And so, um, we acknowledge and honor and accept the fact that you are our King you are our guide, you are our father, you are our protector and our friend, and we invite you, Lord, to be with us, and we want to be with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.